Buongiorno, benvenuto, hello and welcome to episode two of City Breaks Florence, the episode in which we're going to, after last week's introduction, get down and have a really good look at one particular place in Florence and where better to start than with the lovely Duomo, the cathedral, that building which is the emblem of Florence for people all over the world. If they don't know anything else about the city, that'll be the one building that possibly they recognise, Brunelleschi's lovely dome on the skyline. Did you know that when Florentines leave their lovely city and go somewhere else, they're not said to be homesick, they're said to be sick for the dome. So it's not just foreigners who think of it as the place which represents the city, it's the people who live there themselves. Okay, so to start at the beginning, the proper name for the cathedral is Santa Maria del Fiore, which means Holy Mary of the Flower. Of course, in the 13th century when it was built, there were many, many churches dedicated to Mary, and so a lot of them had a sort of sub-name to differentiate them from the other churches dedicated to her. And This one was of the flower, the flower being thought to be the lily, because the lily is the symbol of Florence. And right from the beginning was a building that was designed to impress. There was a public decree written just before 1296 when, it, when building started, which said the following. The Florentine Republic desires that an edifice shall be constructed so magnificent in its height and quality that it shall surpass anything of the kind produced in the time of their greatest power by the Greeks and the Romans. That reference to the Greeks and the Romans is important, of course, because it gives us a hefty clue to the idea of the Renaissance. So the Renaissance took place when medieval man looked about and remembered what marvellous things had been written and sculpted and, and created generally by the Greeks and the Romans and became aware that really their era had nothing similar to offer and a lot of people set about trying to put that right and so when people compare what they're about to create with the work done at the time of greatest power by the Greeks and the Romans, they're really saying, yes, let's rival that. Um, not everybody loved the cathedral. I've got a couple of quotes to read you. The first one from somebody who perhaps wasn't so smitten and the second one by somebody who definitely was. So our first writer is Tobias Smollett who wrote a book called Travels Through France and Italy, published in 1776. And this is what he wrote about the cathedral in Florence. Quote, The Cathedral of Florence is a great Gothic building, encrusted on the outside with marble. It is remarkable for nothing but its cupola, and for its size, which is much greater than any other church in Christendom. Slightly dismissive, I think you agree. Well, it might be big, but that's all I've got to find good in it. And before we get to our second quote, just a word about a book that I'll be referring to a lot, certainly in this episode and actually generally through the series, and that's a book called Lives of the Artists, which was written by one Giorgio Vasari in, would you believe, 1550. Um, he chose about 40 artists. He wrote up their biographies. He gave his views on the work that they produced. Um, and it's likely spiced with quite a lot of gossip and scandal and witty asides. It's really one of the very first books of art history. And for a series like this, when we'll be looking at a lot of the art in Florence, of course, it's absolute gold dust. 
So the second quote I'm going to read you actually comes not from Vasari himself, but from Betty Burroughs, who edited um, a version of his book in 1960 and wrote the following about the cathedral in her introduction. It rises above Florence like a benediction. It looks at once both strong and soaring. I love that mix of her um, appreciation of the actual edifice, the fact that it's strong and soaring, uh, but also the fact that she comments on the effect that seeing the cathedral has on you and talks about it rising like a benediction. Okay, so to think about the cathedral itself then, um, building began in 1296. It wasn't really properly finished until 1472. Um, And in that all that time, hundreds of artists and architects worked on it. It was a real workshop of creativity, Um, sculptors, painters, people to do the prosaic things like put the doors and windows in and many, many people to do the decorations, of course, not just inside, but also all those wonderful sculptures on the outside. But of all the people who contributed, there'd be one name that really stands out above all the others, and that would be Filippo Brunelleschi, the man who designed the dome. And here again, we can pause for a quote from Giorgio Vasari, because this is what he had to say on this topic. Quote, Brunelleschi gave the world the most noble, vast and beautiful building of modern times and proved that the talent of Tuscan artists, though it had been lost for a time, was not dead. So again, he's comparing the wonderful things that have been done in the past, um, saying that these talents had been lost for a time and saying, but look, here we are, we're back. This talent hasn't gone away. Let's see what we can do in our era. So I'd like to continue with um, a biography of Brunelleschi, tell you a little bit about who he was and how he came to design the dome. Okay, so when he was very young, he lived in Florence and he was apprenticed, I imagine by his father, to a golds- to the Goldsmiths Guild. And again, we've got Vasari to thank for a little tidbit here. He tells us that what Brunelleschi got up to while he was apprenticed to the Goldsmiths Guild was that he, quote, made several very good and beautiful watches. So very early on, he obviously had creative talent and that was that was a, the way that was chosen for him by his family. Um, but in fact, he didn't confine himself for too long to just goldsmithing. Um, he became friends with the sculptor Donatello. We'll be hearing quite a lot more about him in a subsequent episode. Um, and that made Brunelleschi interested in sculpture and in buildings. And around about the same time, he started doing some building work in Florence, doors and windows, that sort of thing. Um, And he got very interested in perspective and began to draw madly and was very keen to get the perspective correct um, in what he produced. And then he did what a lot of artists and craftsmen did in those days. He went a-travelling. He went to Rome, along with Donatello, in fact. And there, of course, plenty more buildings to study, which he did, and he drew them endlessly, drawing every type. He seemed to really want to get to the bottom of what was possible in architecture. And again, we've got Vasari uh, telling us a little bit more about this. So this is his list of the things that um, Brunelleschi drew while he was in Rome. Quote, temples, round, square, octagon, basilicas, aqueducts, baths, arches, the Colosseum, amphitheatres. So anything and everything. And while he was drawing them, 
Brunelleschi examined the building in, in great detail. He was really interested to know how had it been done? What were the mechanics of creating these wonderful things? And Vasari also tells us how he believes that Brunelleschi used to look at the ruins, the Roman ruins, um, and imagine for himself what those buildings had looked like when they were first put up. So he's really getting into the detail of how it's done. So when he returned to Florence, which he did in 1407, he arrived, the dome, sorry, the cathedral was nearly finished um, and the talk of the town was how were they going to finish it off? How were they going to have a dome to go on top of it? This was deemed not to be an easy project. People thought it couldn't be done. The dome would have to be 45 metres in diameter. It would have to be 100 metres high. And who could possibly devise a way to create something so large and heavy and beautiful at the same time and heave it all that way up and leave it safely on top of the cathedral. Brunelleschi set about preparing some models and doing some of his drawing, um, but this wasn't a quick project to solve, and we get right up to 1420, so fully 13 years after he first came back to Florence, nothing yet has been achieved, and the city authorities are thinking they need to move things along somehow, so they came up with an idea. They would have a competition. They would invite people to submit their ideas. They would peruse them all and hopefully amongst them they would find something which seemed workable and then that work could be got underway and the problem would finally be on its way to a solution. So Brunelleschi set about preparing some drawings um, but he was quite secretive about it. Other people were showing each other their drawings um, but Brunelleschi really didn't. He kept them to himself. Just occasionally he would take aside an influential person, a church warden or somebody, and show them a few ideas so that they knew he was working on something but he was very tight-lipped about what it actually was. Brunelleschi actually had some uh, experience of competitions which hadn't gone too well. A few years earlier he'd entered a competition and come second competition was to design the doors of the baptistery um, and was won by one Ghiberti and uh, Brunelleschi wasn't going to let that happen again if he could possibly avoid it. So eventually a meeting was held, people were invited along with their ideas, 19 models were submitted, Brunelleschi didn't bring one but he came to the meeting and everyone looked at what there was and then Brunelleschi suddenly said I've got an idea, I know how we should resolve this I've brought an egg with me and I challenge anybody to make it stand up straight with no supports on a flat mar marble surface. And I think if you can do that, you'll prove that you have the knowledge to take on this project. And various people tried, nobody could do it. And then Brunelleschi took back the egg and dented the bottom a little bit, dented the shell to flatten it out and sat it up on the marble surface and said, there you are, I've done it. To which the others all said, oh, well, we could have done that. And Brunelleschi's reply was, yes, but I'm the only person who thought of it. So he put himself in the running, was in fact chosen, um, although the authorities in fact decided that perhaps they would have two architects working on this project. So Brunelleschi and, yes, you've guessed it, his old rival, Ghiberti. Now, Brunelleschi wasn't very happy about this. And having got the project by one ruse, he devised another trick to get rid of this person he didn't want to work with. So what work gets underway and then Brunelleschi uh, pretended he was sick. He wrapped his head in a towel, he stayed in bed, he kept away from work 
and uh, Lorenzo Ghiberti carried on with the work for a little bit. And then, he, of course, he had questions which he sent to Brunelleschi. And Brunelleschi kept saying, well, if he can't do without the work without me, I wonder what he's doing here at all. And he actually uttered the famous phrase, I could do very well without him. So he's making it very clear. And he kept away and kept away until eventually Ghiberti was forced to admit that actually by himself he didn't think he could do the project. And Brunelleschi then got his way and was allowed to continue solo. This was all quite premeditated. Vasari is quite amusing on this point. He tells us that Brunelleschi had very much planned to get rid of uh, Ghiberti and he, he explains this in the following way. Quote, Improvements and new inventions were occurring to him and he resolved to get rid of this useless colleague. So I've tied myself in knots trying to decide how to explain what it was exactly uh, that Brunelleschi decided to do to solve this problem of how to create such a difficult uh, finish such a difficult project and I think the simplest solution actually is just to read to you a little paragraph from the Rough Guide to Tuscany and Umbria you might know the Rough Guide series has often has um, a lot of useful little information panels through the book about all sorts of things and in this one there's one on Brunelleschi's dome and this is how they explain what he did so quote the key to Brunelleschi's success lay in the construction of the dome as two masonry shells each built as a stack of ever-diminishing rings, secured with hidden stone beams and enormous iron chains. These concentric circles formed a lattice that was filled with lightweight bricks in a herringbone pattern that prevented the higher sections from falling inward. So by 1436, it was decided that work had progressed far enough for a consecration ceremony to be held for the cathedral. The Pope came and officiated, although in fact the cathedral was only really finally completed in the 1460s, which was about 15 years after Brunelleschi's death. He was buried, very fittingly, in the cathedral in 1446, and the inscription on his tomb called him a divino ingenio, so a divine genius, and another pair of words that was used was homo universale, so a man of universal interests. I think in modern English that's Renaissance man, is it not? So he was buried uh, with full remembrance of the wonderful achievement that he had, he had made. But let's give the very last word to Michelangelo, who know, knew a thing or two about um, this sort of thing. And this is what he had to say when he looked at the, do the finished dome. I'll give you the Italian first and then the English. So he said, Como te non voglio. As you did, I do not want to do. Melio di te non posso. Better than you, I cannot do. So really, the very highest praise. So moving on then, let's go inside the cathedral. Um, I'm only going to highlight two things in here um, because really there's so much to see that we could spend episode after episode on it and um, I don't really want to do that. So I'm going to pick out one painting uh, to talk about and one story to tell you. Uh, and the painting is one called Dante Explaining the Divine Comedy. It was painted in 1465 by Domenico Michelino. When you get to the end of the queue, you enter the cathedral um, at the opposite end of the altar on the left-hand side. And if you walk up that left-hand side towards the altar, up on the left on the wall, you will eventually come to this painting. And I've chosen it because it encapsulates quite a lot about Florence. So first of all, it's about one of, it's of, sorry, one of Florence's most well-known citizens, best writers, Dante. 
It's slightly ironic that the painting was put up on the 200th anniversary of his birth, um, and the authorities by that stage, of course, were full of Dante and what he'd done for the city. I don't think they mentioned at the unveiling that, in fact, he had been exiled from Florence for the last 20 years of his life. I think they'd scooped him back up and used him um, as a symbol of the city. But the actual subject matter of the painting also celebrates the city of Florence. So in the centre, you've got Dante himself holding a book, which is the Divine Comedy, his best known work. And he's wearing his poet's hat decorated with laurel leaves. So he's been given, um, he's been shown as a, an honoured man of the city. And the background to the painting is in three sections, as of course the Divine Comedy itself is, and each section is devoted to a different section of the book. So on the left-hand side, you've got hell, and you've got pictures of the damned with demons in hell, having a very miserable time. Um, in fact, uh, some of the people were recognisable actual Florentines. Dante put real people or alluded to them in his descriptions, and the painter did the same. Um, in the centre, you've got Adam and Eve, on top of the Mount of Purgatory, so in the halfway house, hoping to get into heaven when they've done their time in Purgatory. And then on the right-hand side, of course, you've got a representation of heaven or the holy city. But in fact, um, an inspection of that part of the painting will show you that, in fact, um, it's Florence. The cathedral's there, other recognisable buildings of Florence are there. So that's why I think it's a painting that represents Florence very much, both the architecture actually drawn in the uh, painted in, in the work and the, the picture of um, Dante. And now for the final section of this podcast in which I'd like to deliver on the promise of the murder in the cathedral story which I think I made in the previous episode. So the said murder took place in 1478. It took place at the front of the cathedral right up by the altar on the left hand side and the person who was murdered was one Giuliano di Medici, so the son of the um, famous Medici banking family. In fact, his brother was also nearly murdered. He managed to escape Lorenzo. So, as soon as you hear the words murder in the cathedral, you're presumably thinking, why? What was the reason? And to explain that, we need to just take a little detour. Okay, so it all centres around the Pope... One Sixtus the Fourth. It tells you quite a lot about him if you know that he made six of his nephews car cardinals. So he was a a pope of possibly slightly low morals. And um, this particular story starts with one of his expansion plans. He decided he wanted to take over the city of Imola, and he would need a lot of money for that, obviously, to finance people to go and fight on his behalf. So he approached the Medici family for money. Now, the Medici were a bit nervous about this. Imola was quite close to Milan and Bologna and places that you didn't really want the Pope having any more influence. So they said no. Quite brave to refuse the Pope money because the Medici family made their fortune partly on the fact that they were the main bankers to the Popes, which of course was very lucrative. But on this occasion, they felt no, they really couldn't go along with this. And they said no. And the Pope was furious. So to get his revenge, and also, of course, to get his money, he approached a different banking family in Florence who went under the name of Pazzi, P-A-Z-Z-I. So a conspiracy was born. Things came to a head um, when the Pazzi family went to the Pope thinking, uh, to ask his advice on what they should do about their feud with the Medici. And the Pope used the following weaselly words. He said, well, quote, I do not wish the death of anyone on any account, since it does not accord with our office to consent to such a thing. 
Go and do what you wish, provided there be no killing. So he certainly said the right thing. There shouldn't be any killing. But I think he took a step back then and just let things uh, develop. He had, after all, told them to go and do as they wished. What they wished, really, was to get rid of the Medici. So they hatched a plan. They would go to um, the cathedral on Easter Sunday for Mass. They knew that the Medici brothers would be there. So we're talking about Lorenzo um, and his brother Giuliano. And they would murder them. Pretty horrific, but it it actually gets worse if such a thing is possible. So two of the murderers were in fact priests and they were actually taking part in the mass, wearing their priest's clothing, under which they'd hidden the daggers that they were intending to use for the dastardly deed. And the plan they hatched was that they would choose the moment of the mass, the most solemn moment of all, when the priest raises the host to bless it just before mass. That was the moment they would strike. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly at that moment, uh, one of the conspirators, Bernardo Bandini, set upon Giuliano de' Medici and stabbed him full force in the head with his blade and killed him. At the same moment, the two priests pull their daggers out from beneath their robes and pounce on Lorenzo. But Lorenzo had much more luck, as it happened. He had a group of friends with him who were very quick thinking, and they clustered round him and helped him somehow escape. And he leapt over to the back of, behind the altar. If you stand looking at the altar, you'll see on the left-hand side at the back, big heavy wooden door. That's the door into the Sagrestia Nuova, or the new sacristy. And Lorenzo managed to get into there, along with some of his friends, and they barricaded themselves in, and then eventually managed to escape uh, and get free. Another little detail I read which shows you the loyalty of his friends. One of Lorenzo's friends immediately uh, set upon him to suck the blood out of his wound because he knew that there was a possibility that the dagger with which he'd been stabbed would have poison on the tip. So he he knew it was his job to suck that out before it did any damage. Well, if you're on the side of justice, you'll be pleased to know that they caught all but one of the conspirators. They were chased through the streets, they were caught, they were taken to the Piazza della Signoria, they were taken up to the tower at the top of the Palazzo Vecchio, they were tortured, they were castrated, they were hanged from out of the window so that everybody could see them. Although, in fact, unfortunately, one of the leaders of the gang, one Jacopo di Pazzi, had managed to escape, and it was some time before he was caught up with, but caught up with he eventually was. So he too was tortured and hanged and then buried in Santa Croce. But people began to feel that that really wasn't enough. So they dug him up again, um, dragged his corpse through the streets and propped it up outside the Pazzi Palace. So outside his own home. Um, and then they cut his head off and stuck it on the door as some kind of macabre door knocker. So feeling a bit more satisfied then, the mob threw his body into the river Arno. Thought about that and thought... Maybe we'll fish it out again. So out it comes, flogged again, hanged again, and finally thrown back into the river. And Lorenzo de' Medici also made sure that he got his revenge. Of course, not only had his own life been threatened, he'd lost his younger brother, Giuliano. And he wanted to make it very clear to everybody that this sort of behaviour couldn't be tolerated. So he approached his favourite artist, Botticelli, and paid him 40 florins to paint a fresco on the side of the Palazzo della Signoria, which would have unflattering portraits of the eight leading conspirators, including Bernardo Bandini, who at this stage was actually still on the run. 
so they were all painted with nooses round their necks to indicate the punishment, um, except for Bandini, who was painted hanging upside down by his foot, and Lorenzo himself wrote a little verse to be painted on underneath the painting, which read in English as follows. A fugitive who has not escaped the fates, for on his return a far crueler death awaits. And sure enough, Lorenzo pursued that story until it came to an end, and eventually his spies told him that Bandini had taken off to Constantinople. So Lorenzo sent a diplomatic request to the Sultan of Turkey and made sure that Bandini was arrested and shipped back to Florence in chains. And of course, a similar gruesome fate awaited him when he got there, and Lorenzo, still not totally satisfied, wanted the fresco altered. He wanted everybody to be able to see that Bandini had been caught and dispatched as well. Um, so he went back to Botticelli, who was busy that day, or busy that, at that moment, I don't know doing what, but he wasn't able to comply. So Lorenzo asked another artist, in fact, Leonardo da Vinci, could he please finish it off? And this was duly done, and I like to think that at that point Lorenzo thought, right, okay, now I've got what I wanted. Um, unfortunately, the fresco is not there today to see. It did disappear at some point, but we do know that it was there for the entire reign of the Medici family in Florence. So while they were there, the fresco was there, because it said to everybody, if you mess with the Medici, it will end badly. So just to finish by returning to the cathedral, um, as I said, if you stand at the altar and look to your left, you'll see the big heavy wooden door that leads into the sacristy. You can't get very close uh, these days because they put um, barriers up, but um, you might like to know that on the door handles of those big heavy doors, there are two little portraits of um, Lorenzo and Giuliano de' Medici just there as a reminder of what happened to them on that day in 1478. So that concludes my piece on the cathedral. Um, just to say that next episode, in fact, we're going to stay with the cathedral, kind of. Uh, instead of staying inside, we're going to go outside. Um, I think the best way to see it, in fact, you can buy a combined ticket which takes you into the cathedral and gives you entrance to three other buildings um, on the cathedral square, namely uh, the bell tower, Giotto's Campanile and the Baptistery and the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo which is the museum of the works of the cathedral a museum in which in fact some of the original sculptures and uh, the doors from the Baptistery are to be found so you can have a close-up look and of course they're uh, better protected from the weather what you're seeing outside is in fact in some cases carefully made copies. Anyway, so we'll have a look at all of those things and some of the stories attached to them. Um, I hope for the moment that you've enjoyed hearing about the cathedral, the Duomo, and that you are indeed looking forward to next week's episode, um, which follows on from it. So it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening and to sign off in as Italian a way as I can muster by saying to you, grazie e arrivederci. <laughs>